Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So, Whit, have you ever wanted to see the future and to, to know what comes next? I do not want to see the future. I have absolutely <laughs> Why? Why not? no interest Why in not? seeing I mean, Because you can't do anything about it. I can it. tell I mean, you the, the next... The point of living your life is to live it. And if you already know what's going to happen, you're not learning anything. I mean, come on. If I could tell you the next 10 Super Bowl champions, um, a la Biff from Back to the Future, you know, I'd be a billionaire in no time. You'd make it big. We could fund this podcast forever. <laughs> Money, Sugi, it does not lead to happiness. You might also be a terribly unhappy person if you knew, because you'd also know when you were going to die and when all of the people that you knew were going to die and whether or not, you know, I don't know, your books would do well, you know, or whether it was even worth writing. You know, I just don't, I don't want to know those things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I see, I guess I see your point. But the main character of our guest's latest novel, The Road from Belhaven, has um, yield Scottish second sight and is stuck with this problem, whether she likes it or not. That's true. And it's one of the things that makes the book to me so compelling. Margaret Livesey's first book, a collection of stories called Learning by Heart was published by Penguin Canada in 1986. Since then, Margot has published 10 novels, including Homework, Eva Moves the Furniture, The Flight of Gemma Hardy, the Bo- and The Boy in the Field. Her 10th novel, The Road from Belhaven, was published on February 6th, 2024 by Knopf. I did not see it coming. She has been the recipient of fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the NEA, the Massachusetts Artist Foundation, and the Canada Council for the Arts. She is currently teaching at the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop. Margot, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Rich and Sugi. It's great to be here. It's a total joy to welcome you back. Um, The last time you joined us, we discussed Boris Johnson and the legacy of his Brexit decision. So that's one person who I think probably would have tried to change things if he had seen the future. If you had your own future sight, what would you do with it? Um, I take it you mean if I not only had second sight, but the power to change the future. In that case, just so many things, including, of course, Brexit, but also the endless British meddling in many parts of the globe and the tyranny of money and politics and the way American politics gets bogged down in what should be private moral questions and also that my husband is a carnivore. <laughs> but you don't need future sight. <laughs> That's awesome. I those, a lot of those seem like past sight. Yeah, that wasn't a strictly accurate answer. It was more a wish list. (laughs) See, I feel like the first thing I would ask if someone told me that it allowed me that I could see the future is to not be allowed to see the future. I would ask to have that power turned off. I don't I don't think I want that. Well, I mean, it's interesting, the distinction that you made, Margot, because, of course, I mean, we're going to talk about your book a little bit later, but that's something that your protagonist wrestles with, like having second sight and not necessarily being able to alter how things will go. So, I mean, maybe, maybe the question has to be more specific if you, if you have second sight and yeah, if you have that power to alter things, because I mean, if you can't, you would just be driven a bit mad by it. Maybe. We're in the part of the political cycle when everyone is obsessed about knowing the future, who's going to win the 2024 election. Will former president Trump be convicted of a felony? He already just got 
has to pay, I don't know, $400 million for other for financial crimes that he's committed. Uh, will current President Biden have a rousing comeback as he did in the last election? Will Trump pardon himself if he becomes president? To what extent does worrying about the future or asking questions about the future, future act as a way for people to give themselves the gift of, I guess you're calling it second sight, future sight, precognition? If we can predict some terrible event in the future, it can't hurt us that badly, right? Or is that just wishful thinking? I think I don't know. Sometimes preparing for the worst seems to make sense, like wearing a, a life jacket when you're a bo- in a boat or a parachute when you're in a plane. But often I have the sense, alas, mostly in retrospect, that I've been worrying about the wrong thing. And I, yeah. and I would actually have been better just to try and take pleasure in the present and put my worries aside. I do sometimes, I mean, that's where the phrase, you're always fighting the last war, right? You know, like you're always worried about something and then it'll be something that you haven't thought of that's quite dangerous. But then I sometimes think, well, but if you didn't do the worrying about the other stuff, wouldn't maybe that would have still been dangerous. I don't, I don't know. Sugi, how do you do with, how do you deal with this? Um, I mean, I think like the question of, yeah, how does worry alter anything, right? Because I mean, as I mean, as someone with like I have anxiety, um, like as a diagnosed thing, which I think is not super uncommon these days, and right, like so much of it is about like managing your anxiety and concentrating on what you can control and the innumerable things, of course, that you can't, and like does and but everything about the notion of minimizing anxiety suggests that anxiety doesn't change things, but I think anxiety actually sometimes does change things, at least. I don't know, or or that's the that's the en- the energy, the engine behind my anxiety is the notion that my sh- just the sheer power of my worry can can shape something, which is like, I mean, maybe that's maybe that's wishful thinking, but I'm sort of curious, Margot. Like, second sight uh, seems to me like it's like, like it's a particularly Scottish thing, and I wonder if there's like, is there anything about like Scottish politics or history that I mean, when I say it's a particularly Scottish thing, like I'm thinking of, you know, as a kid, my first understanding of like what Second Sight was came from reading Ellen Montgomery, who was writing about like the Scotch-Irish in Canada. And like people were always referring to their Scotch, their Scotch great-grandmother and her her Second Sight and it had skipped a generation, etc. And like, is there something about Scottish history or or politics that would tilt people in the direction of having that belief system? We think of the main examples as being Scottish folklore, Irish folklore, sort of Celts together, maybe Brittany folklore, maybe Nova Scotia, um, all those all those sort of small beleaguered countries believe in seeing the future. Maybe maybe if you're in a wealthy country, you can't see the future. That's interesting. Like, right, like, like the notion of the U.S. as a meritocracy maybe isn't like which is which we've discussed on this show is like false. Right. Maybe that's inherently opposed. Blinds blinds you to the future. Or makes you less afraid of it, maybe. Yeah, maybe that, too. Years ago, I did um, visit Delphi to see the site of the Delphic Oracle. And um, one of the interesting things was discovering there haven't been any oracles since 393 common era. But for several hundred years, middle-aged women offered prophecies. And most of the people who consulted them were uh, military leaders who were asking about war and about political action. And I thought that was extremely interesting that, um, you know, that Delphi was already a sort of site of political power. It wasn't personal. Well, I mean... 
Speaking of people going to the Oracle for political reasons, um, we're recording on February 16th right now, and the polls are saying that Joe Biden is going to lose to President Trump. Uh, February 14th poll from Emerson College shows Trump beating Biden by one to two points, depending on the variables. An Ipsos Reuters poll from February 12th shows Biden down to Trump by two. Polls and pollsters talk about being data-driven and totally objective, but they can be wrong, and they change. I mean, the election is still a long way away. So what to, to what extent are these polls and our obsession with them any different than the oracles that you're talking about in, in your statement just, just before this? Well, I would, I would agree with you, but I think many people would claim that the polls are scientifically driven, that they're very comparable to, say, a meteorologist looking at a, a radar map of, of the weather. In the case of the oracle, I'll, have, I'll say in her defense, um, she was um, in direct communication with the god Apollo. But the problem was that the messages were often obscure or ambiguous. Ah. Well, I think a one to two point lead within the margin of error is obscure and ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Well, this is all like, maybe this is why the president of Sri Lanka, um, the previous president of Sri Lanka, I should say, was consulting his astrologer, um, a thing which also made headlines. But so let's say the polls are right and Trump would win if the election were held today. Wait, I can't believe you wrote a script that I have to say this. It makes me just shudder with horror. Um, Is that knowledge even worth having? Or does imagining you know the outcome change the future by itself? I mean, a lot of people myself included, I mean, felt that Hillary Clinton was the inevitable winner of the 2016 election. And that certainty may have kept enough Democratic voters home to actually hand the victory to Trump. What do you think about that? Well, I can't help thinking of Macbeth riding home from battle and meeting the three witches who tell him he will be king hereafter. And that prophecy drives him within 24 hours to murder Duncan, something it seems it had never entered his head until that that moment. So there's a scary feeling that sometimes the prophecies are not just predicting the future, but shaping the future. All right. So you just mentioned Macbeth, obviously the Scottish play. Um, but it's not the only example of a narrative with precognitive main characters. Um, more recently, uh, Professor Trelawney in Harry Potter, which I'm I'm not even going to comment on my level of familiarity with, or Paul Atreides in Dune. Uh, have you ever encountered, have you, like, other than the Macbeth, you know, have you encountered, what kind of, what's your experience of reading about precognition in literature and, and what books do you look back on as being important or influential for you? I grew up reading the stories of John Buchan. Uh, I didn't at that time recognize him as a, misogynist, um, yeah, terrible misogynist, anti-Semitic person. Um, And he has wonderful, wonderful supernatural stories set in the Scottish Highlands. And I I loved um, C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces, his retelling Mm. of the psyche myth, which C.S. Lewis regarded as his most successful novel. And perhaps my favorite story about precognition is actually the Canadian writer Alistair MacLeod's amazing story, Vision, which has an ending that makes your hair rise. It's just fantastic. I was thinking of mine is less like 
pretty. But, you know, Tyrone Slothrop in uh, Gravity's Rainbow has been, like, Skinnerized and trained to get an erection whenever a V2 rocket goes off. Isn't that a form of precognition in its own, right? I think I'd have to reread that to be completely sure. (laughs) It takes a while. Get started now. We'll have you back next year. (laughs) Cool. So speaking of precognition and other kind of second sight characters in literature, is there... Um, anyone or anything in particular that inspired how you wrote your protagonist, Lizzie, and her second sight and ability? Yes, Lizzie has a a real-world model. In 2017, after more than 40 years of thinking I had no living relatives, I discovered in a roundabout way through Ancestry.com that I actually had many relatives, but they all happened to live in, in or around Brisbane in Australia. And when I went to visit them, they told me stories about my great-grandmother, Lizzie Craig, who had been born in Scotland, and her gift of seeing the future. And of course, I was completely fascinated by this, in part because years ago, I wrote a novel called Eva Moves the Furniture about my mother's relationship with the supernatural. And now suddenly, this new information made it seem that Eva's gift was not unique but in fact hereditary well i so first of all i love that that connection between those books and, and even those the furniture is a, incredibly one of my favorite books of yours um and i and i and this book also is is going to be in that category um lizzie's power seems to shape her life a lot you know especially in her relationship with her long-lost sister kate there's this scene in chapter seven where one of lizzie's visions causes a lot of tension between her and her sister. I wonder if you could read that section for us and talk a little bit more about Lizzie and Kate's relationship. I'll do my I'll do my best. <laughs> in the days that followed, Lizzie thought often of those weeks after Kate's arrival, when she had felt not merely invisible, but shunned. Once or twice her grandmother gave her a quick glance, but her grandfather looked past her. They'll come around, Kate kept saying. Over and over, Lizzie imagined telling them she had changed her mind, how her grandfather would nod and get out the cribbage board. Her grandmother would embrace her. Then she thought of Louis, of the winter ahead. Lying in bed one night after another silent supper, she heard raised voices and tiptoed into the hall. Rab, if you drive Lizzie away like you drove Helen, I don't know how I'll forgive you. It isn't a sin to want to see other places. Honour thy father and mother, said her grandfather. That's what we say every Sunday, and now our granddaughter is behaving like those words mean nothing. Maybe if she were going to Glasgow to study, I could countenance that. But she's going to clean other people's privies and run after that tailor. That tailor mended my skirt so you wouldn't know it was torn, and he worked hard in the fields. There was the sound of footsteps, her grandfather pacing. He did. And that's part of what I have against him. He cuts his coat according to the fashion. You can't trust a lad who's always trying to please everyone. Rab, she'll go whether we like it or not. But if we forbid her, she won't come back. He said something that sounded like good riddance. In the morning, Lizzie carried her porridge out to the barn to avoid the silence. Only Kate's assurances that they would eventually relent enabled her to stand firm. Then, on Sunday, Mr. Wall preached on the text. 
For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Our souls are close to heaven, he claimed, when we forgive each other. As they walked home, her grandfather stooped to pick a flower from the hedgerow. I'll miss my bonnie lass, he said, holding out the purple vetch. Lizzie put the flower to press between the pages of Gulliver's Travels. On her last evening, she was in the dairy skimming the milk when she felt the familiar jolt. There was Kate weeding the garden at Lilac Cottage. Nearby, May was making a daisy chain, and Annie was crawling. The new baby was slumped against the gatepost, his mouth opening and closing in big gulps, like a fish craving water. Spit dribbled down his chin. He's poorly, she thought. But before she could determine what ailed him, she was back, spooning cream into the churn. As soon as the butter was made, Lizzie hurried to Lilac Cottage. Kate was bending over the oven, checking on her oatcakes. What are you doing here, she said. Straightening, she took in Lizzie's tangled hair and flushed cheeks. Is something wrong? I had a picture of you while I was churning the butter. You're right, the baby is a boy, but he's different from May and Annie. He just stared and... She was still talking when Kate interrupted. I won't hear another word about your daft pictures. Now kiss the girls goodbye and go home to your packing. Lizzie started to remind Kate of her promise that she would tell her whenever she had a picture of Kate. But again, her sister cut her off. Later, she would understand. The new baby was coming as surely as Lizzie's train tomorrow. He could not be stopped or changed. But walking home, her eyes stung with fury. Thank you so much. Um, just one of very many intensely suspenseful parts of the book. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. So that, that scene in chapter seven is not the only time that Lizzie's second sight gets her in trouble. And it's not the last time that she sees things she tries desperately to change. And in this case, I mean, she's actually saying it to her sister has previously, as, as the passage mentions, said, you know, if you see something that involves me, you have to tell me, you have to tell me. And now Lizzie is fulfilling her promise and Kate is kind of um, can't hear it because she knows that it's unstoppable. Can you talk a little bit about how Lizzie's second sight plays out across the book, um, avoiding, of course, any spoilers you might wish to avoid. Well, I think because I mentioned hereditary earlier, I should say that, sadly, so far, I have no gift of second sight. So I uh, set out to do research, and I interviewed a number of people who could see the future, and they described what that was like, what not just what they saw, but the feeling that accompanied those moments when they saw something, which I found incredibly interesting. And uh, without exception, the people I talked to, they, like Lizzie, they couldn't choose what they saw. And often what they saw was quite ordinary, um, losing losing a mitten or um, a neighbor wearing a new hat in Lizzie's case. Uh, but but for Lizzie, there are some key moments where she sees really 
momentous things and she tries to intervene and as you might expect the results of trying to change the future are quite mixed but in some ways i think she does eventually regain control of her future it would be nice to imagine that we could all do that i i still i still would i guess i would do the opposite of kate i would say if you see something about me if i knew someone like that i do not want to know anything at all about that um and uh so i what would you do margo if you were in that situation I don't think I have your willpower, Wit. I think I would say, bring it on. Tell me tell me what's going to happen. Mm. Um, yeah, I think so, but who knows? I, so far, I haven't been tested. <laughs> well, given that the road, to Bel- road from Belhaven is set in 19th century Scotland, I mean, you know, precognition is the, the only thing that's happening in this book. And the other thing that, I, that we were thinking about is how different, you know, the world that Lizzie is living in, just in terms of gender equality and the ways that relationships work, you know, compared to contemporary uh, Scotland. Um, How did you think about that, uh, those issues, as you were thinking back into the past um, of this uh, this story? Well, I think, you know, it's so easy to take the Victorian novel as the kind of received picture of Victorian life. But in fact, research suggests that Victorian life in many ways differed dramatically from that portrayed in in the novels we cherish, and that manners and morals were quite a bit, quite a bit different. So I, I think that I hope that what li- people will see when they when they read about Lizzie is some of the things that are still are still constant that we struggle to make good choices and at the same time we're uneasily aware of the significant role chance often plays in our lives. Uh, we believe in reason and yet sometimes our feelings overwhelm reason. Uh, I think the lives of children are are very passionate. I think it's like acting out King Lear every day being a child but that children typically don't understand the dark river of sex that underlies adult life and how that is acting like a magnet on people's choices so often. And then there is the world of work and Lizzie very much inhabits the world of work like like most contemporary readers. So I hope there's a way of, of getting from the 2020s to the 1880s um, that doesn't make the reader feel that they are entering a historical novel so much as stepping into a slightly different version of a life that could be being lived just down the road from them. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. It does feel, I mean, it feels strikingly contemporary. So I'm curious, just sort of from a, I have so many questions for you, but I feel like one of the ones I want to ask is about, um, is there are some things that Lizzie sees pictures of, and then there are other key decisions where she is not given any vision of what the future will look like. And so she actually is making her decisions um, in the absence of knowledge. And then there are other moments where... um, 
like other characters will actually predict the future for her, but they're doing it in a way that just arises from common sense and a greater adult understanding of the world than the one that she has. Cause, because we, when we start the book, she's, um, she's 13. Right. And, and so she's, she's a kid and she sometimes is like seeing things in general in kind of the way that a kid does. She sees a lot that she doesn't always understand or know how to interpret. And so sometimes people right early in the book, there's like a very, there's a sad moment where we understand that a young woman has, um, died by suicide, has has drowned herself um, as a result of um, expecting a child and and knowing that she won't be able to marry the father, that the father is not going to marry her. And then this is, in a way, a thing that links to the ways that women later in the book, um, you know, the some of the choices that they face or don't face or want to face, like different twists and turns of fate. But some of those just have to do with... Um, like sometimes the predictions don't arise from any magic. They just arise from adult knowledge. I'm so curious about how you picked what Lizzie would see and not see, because you, of course, are like, you know, you're pulling the strings. So so how did you decide? I think with great difficulty. I should say that the novel actually starts when Lizzie is 10 years old. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, but that was one of the one of the most difficult things was to decide what she would have pictures of when the when the pictures would interrupt her daily life i mean most of her life is very daily it's feeding the hens and milking the cows and churning the milk and going to school and later going to her job so it was it was quite hard to decide um how often the pictures should sort of remind her of this force sort of hovering hovering nearby as it were and i think um it's i like so much what you say about you know the role of adult common sense in her life and how the adults around her suggest what what might happen and of course she resists many of those suggestions even the suggestions that come from kate who's only a couple of years older um, can sometimes be quite quite aggravating. I think that that's the reason actually that the the age 13 stuck in my head is because that's actually the age she is when Kate arrives, right? Exactly. Okay. I mean, adults can have, I mean, children too, I guess, but it can have precognition all the time. I mean, people, you can see two people get together in a relationship and you can say, that is not going to work. I can see that, but they have to go through it themselves. It doesn't do any good to tell them even if you end up being right in the end, you know, the, the part, the part, that's part of the process. But sometimes that process takes decades, Whit. I my know. De- my dentist yeah. told me recently that one of his colleagues was getting divorced at the age of 85 from his first marriage. Wow. Well, uh, maybe he didn't. Maybe he needed to go through all of that. I don't know. <laughs> if you told him at eighty-five you're going to get divorced, I mean, maybe he'd say, "Well, okay, that's a nice long run." I don't know. That seems not that bad. <laughs> I love the fact that you're going to the dentist and getting better. Of course, you're you're going to the dentist and receiving amazing stories. <laughs> well, needless to say, I'm a helpless listener. So the dentist just <laughs> talks about whatever he chooses. <laughs> But I do think that that you know all of us sort of want to want to feel we're in control of our lives and we're more or less committed to the idea that we have free will. And then as we grow up, various things begin to 
put pressure on that idea, the idea of hereditary, the idea of what's hereditary, the idea of family patterns, the idea of luck and coincidence playing a role. And in Lizzie's case, the idea that the future is somehow already mapped out and just waiting for her to step into it. So when you discovered that this was something that your family was connected to, and then when you discovered it again, right, in the figure of um, Elizabeth Craig, did you feel relief, dismay? Do you own a Ouija board or a magic eight ball? I used to have a magic eight ball that I consulted relentlessly. Um, In fact, when I first was at Iowa with WIT, I often consulted the eight ball. Um, And (laughs) I have to say, it was not a very good oracle. It it was mostly ambiguous and misleading. And of course, I keep, I mean, I'm like a, a diviner looking for water. I keep hoping that somehow I'll have second sight, but I remain very rooted in the everyday. Except that you've written a novel in which you have the choice, you get to give visions to the person. So actually you are creating second sight within the fictional world, I would say. I I like to think so. And indeed, my main kind of second sight at the moment is actually rereading novels I love, which I've mostly forgotten. And then suddenly as I'm reading, I remember them. (laughs) Um, well, maybe as we're bringing this conversation to a close, could you maybe send us off with some of those recommendations that you were things that you were returning to? Well, right now I am I have to confess slogging my way through Daniel Deronda. It has oh, yeah. I'm I'm it has one of the most exciting openings in 19th century literature, which is completely obfuscated by George Eliot's tedious, moralizing, overly descriptive prose. You just want to reach into the novel and shake her as to how she can make something so exciting, so annoying. But I'm hoping she's going to turn a corner soon. Well, maybe you'll remember in a minute. Margot, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both. You guys are amazing. I don't know about that. Uh, And listeners, don't miss The Road from Bellhaven and Margot's other work available at an independent bookstore near you. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading! <laughs>